Hello, and welcome to BZ Listening. I'm your host, BZ Douglas, and happy almost birthday, America! Now, now I know you're excited to light off your fireworks, barbecue in the backyard, and see all the people waving your flag and wearing it as a swimsuit, but first, we gotta talk about some serious problems with your election systems. Uh, my guest today is Lulu Freistadt, Communications Director of Smart Elections, a new nonpartisan project dedicated to elevating the issue of election reform to an urgent national priority. I first met Lulu while working with New York Election Justice, a small team of activists investigating problems with the 2016 New York election primary. Uh, to hear more about that endeavor, go back to episode 5, where I talk with Holly LaCroix, a member of that group. Uh, but Lulu was present at some of the same hearings I attended and, and wrote about, and she was coordinating with other national organizations to shed light on voting problems across the country. On July 13th, Lulu will be moderating a panel at Netroots Nation in Philadelphia. Uh, that's kind of like the Comic-Con of online progressive activism. If you would like to help cover Lulu's travel expenses by donating some frequent flyer miles, please reach out to her on Twitter at Lulu Freistat. That's L-U-L-U-F-R-I-E-S-D-A-T. Or you can just visit bzdug.com slash podcast, find the footnotes for this episode, and I'll have a nice easy link for you to click on there. And be sure to check out smartelections.us to see all the reporting we discussed in this episode and learn how you can take action to make our democracy something worth celebrating on the 4th of July. Sorry to be a downer, but I just got to say that between the problems we discussed in this episode and the ongoing stories of concentration camps at the border, I'm not really feeling like celebrating tomorrow. I don't know. It's going to feel like attending the birthday party of a boss who is a severe alcoholic and that I recently learned is beating his wife and kids. In a word, awkward. In several words, not my idea of a fun time. Anyway, that's enough of of my, my, my rambling. Let's get right into the interview with Lulu. Thank you so much for listening. And now on with the show. I'm Lulu Freistat. I'm a journalist and a documentary filmmaker, and I specialize in election security. I've worked in network news for over 10 years. I've worked with all the major networks, with uh, ABC, CBS, NBC. Uh, I worked on the show Nightline. And I've also worked with some more, you know, kind of newer media outlets. Now This has run uh, quite a few of my pieces and the pieces that I've done with now this have been investigative pieces about election security and they've received more than four million views uh, in about the last year and a half and then in addition to that I've done print work with uh, other organizations like Truth Out and Salon uh, my work has been covered on Politico and the Christian Science Monitor uh, in about the last year and a half and then in addition to that I've done print work with uh, other organizations like Truth Out and Salon, uh, my work has been covered on Politico and the Christian Science Monitor. So I, I have a kind of a niche, and that is election security. There's probably only about half a dozen journalists in the country that are really focused on election security. 
and it's something that I wish that people were more aware of. I really, for me, it's absolutely essential. It's the kind of the crux of everything else that is happening, everything that's happening around us. Our government seems in chaos. Uh, there's all kinds of decisions that seem to be made at every level that do not benefit the public. Uh, there's all kinds of actions that seem to be illegal by our public officials. A, a real sort of a feeling of kind of out of control feeling in our country right now that people in office are not accountable to the voters. And to me, that stems from our election systems, our, our voting systems. And very few people are aware of how problematic the systems that we vote on are. The machines that we vote on are really hackable. They're very, very, they have many, many security vulnerabilities. Many of them have been hacked uh, in the lab multiple times. Uh, there's really only four major vendors and the, and their machines are antiquated. The equipment is often, even when it's new, based on very old platforms, you know, talking about operating systems from that are sometimes decades old and and the, the certification process that the, that the machines have to go through is in many ways controlled by the vendors who actually sell the equipment, much as uh, we see in other industries, right? We see the pharmaceutical industry where uh, that industry is writing legislation that controls uh, drugs and how they can be sold. And we see in the healthcare industry, the insurance companies are you know, lobbying and spending money on election officials and writing their own legislation. I want to ask you real quick. Um, this was a question I had in a list to, you know, to, to cover if we, it came up later. But to what degree are there overlaps with other Democratic bad actors such as Alec or the Koch brothers or any, you know, any other just, you know, larger entities that that um, you can point to that that are behind this? Because. You know, you you said like, you know, there's four vendors. The big ones that come to mind for me that I, I've been aware of are ES&S and Diebold. And when I went back to look at the history of ES&S and tried to find uh, articles as you know far back as I could, you know, the, some of the ones that were really glaring were from back in like 2008 and, and even going back further than that. And like you said, they've been getting away with this for a while. I'm just curious how much, um, like who is behind the company and, and to what degree do they have ties in, in other aspects of election, uh, you know, engineering and some voter suppression because the machines are like that one component. And then there's the other side of it where it's like purging registrations. And then there's, it's, it's one aspect of, of a lot of different ways that these all come together. And I'm curious about what overlaps you're aware of. I could not tell you specifically, like, if there are big actors behind these voting machine vendors. The vendors themselves have been engaged in activities that are considered certainly in some ways ethically compromised. So there actually was an article just today uh, on NPR about the ways that the different vendors, especially ES&S, are really uh, showering election officials with 
gifts, the trip, um, really uh, kind of developing a relationship that is too close to and so it's unclear. And, and, and also, also you see election officials kind of there's this same as you have like the lobbying revolving door where lobbyists go in and out of Congress. They go from Congress, you know, to lobby and then they lobbyists become elected officials or work on people's staff. You see that same revolving door in the election industries and it's between the vendors and actual election officials or their staff. So, um, now, to what degree is, do you see, um, is it tend to be partisan in terms of who these people are that are at the heads of these organizations and that are, um, you know, where they intersect with government and how the, the relationship with government is built? Do they tend to be favoring Republican lawmakers or Democrat or just anyone who is uh, towing a certain well, status quo? I think Diebold was the most famous example of that in 2004 when the president of that company, I believe it was, who made the announcement that he would deliver Ohio to the Republican Party. And the Diebold machines were, in fact, you know, the ones that were in use in that state. And that made people incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, so th- I, I know also that I believe ES&S has made tens of thousands of dollars worth of contributions to the Republican Party. But I, that actually is not my research. I think that's research that Jenny Cohn has done. Uh, so uh, I would have to go back and, and check her records. I know that there are contributions going from the vendors to political parties. Uh, and certainly it's something I would like to see. Uh, I would like to see legislation passed that prohibits that. You, there's absolutely no reason why vendors should be contributing to candidates or political parties. It's a, it's a clear conflict of interest uh, and inappropriate because those elections, like, if they're contributing to the Republican Party, how is it possible that their equipment, you know, isn't in, in a, even um, it then has the appearance that perhaps, you know, they are using their equipment to, you know, help that party in some way. And and supposedly, the, you know, these machines are supposed to be neutral. We want the, you know, the election process to be neutral. So it's a it's really it's an industry that is ripe with conflicts of interest that are at least bordering on corruption or at least have the appearance of um, having conflicts of interest. And, and the other thing that I, I just do want to say that is very problematic is that the vendors are very cozy with the, um, the federal office that regulates them, which is the Election Assistance Commission. And the Election Assistance Commission is currently making new guidelines that the vendors will have to comply with that are going to determine our election equipment, you know, for the next 10, 15 years. And they did not have a panel of security experts come and testify for them, but they did have a panel of vendors come and testify before them. And that is just, that is one of the clearest indications about who is influencing this process of, of regulating the voting machines. And so when you're voting machine vendors, or setting their own regulations, you can be sure that the machines that you're voting on do not have the kind of security and do not even have just the basic competency and, and technical sophistication that you would want from a piece of equipment in 2019. Yeah, well, and back in, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure of the year, but it's, it's, it's pretty old. 
Uh, I found this security evaluation of ESNS by the University of uh, Pennsylvania. And like right in the beginning is we found numerous exploitable vulnerabilities in nearly every component of the system. And what I'm curious about is it, it, it seems like or it, it's it's very maddening to to look at this and see so many people over so many years pointing out how poorly built these machines are. And if they keep claiming it's not corruption, we're not making them easily hackable so we can hack them. Oh, we just made bad machines. Like that yin-yang of incompetence, I remember seeing with the New York election primary where they, you know, they purged 120,000 voters and then they just um, blame it on, oh, this person just, you know, did the wrong thing. They scapegoat them and it's like, oh, well, we'll, we'll try better next time, but we're just going to keep doing things the way we've been doing them. And they can just claim it's it, it, it's but how do they i don't understand now after so long of being demonstrated as as, as building these easily corruptible machines that it, it can keep going on without get without them losing all credibility as a vendor well i think when you see a system that's broken and uh and continues year after year after year you have to ask yourself who does the system benefit systems do not stay in operation if they are not benefiting somewhat. And I think the answer to that is that the system benefits those who are currently in office and the system benefits the vendor because those two groups are working in collaboration with each other, right? The people who are currently elected, they have the, they represent the status quo. The machines that exist are the machines that got them elected. So however they got elected on those machines, whether it was you know, legitimate or not, those machines are working for them. So they are going to continue to support those vendors and the process um, by which the vendors, you know, create the machines that got them elected. So you have a system in which the public is basically not even part of that loop. There is no place in that loop for the public to intersect and say, we're not happy with the system because, the, you know, the elected officials keep the legislation in place that, that allows these vendors to do what they do, right? They set up the Election Assistance Commission. It's a toothless commission that makes a voluntary voting system guidelines. The key word in that four-word phrase is voluntary. So the legislation that, that, that our current officials have passed gives, uh, has, has given the Election Assistance Commission the, the, you know, the ability to make voluntary guidelines. Well, voluntary guidelines, what does that mean? It means guidelines that you don't have to follow. So the vendors are not even required to follow these guidelines. And the guidelines in many ways are pretty toothless anyway. And so they can basically do whatever they want. They do do whatever they want. And what they want is to make really cheap, poor quality machines that they sell for the highest possible price. And then those machines are the ones that are electing the people who are currently in office. Now, if, if there are the machines being hacked and is that why people keep getting elected year after year after year? Is that why we have like a 99% return rate to Congress because the machines are being hacked. And so, you know, once you're in office, you know, that you know who to talk to to get those votes in for you. I'm not saying that's the case, but if that's the case, would we know? We would not know. Well, I because just wonder if no it's... One, wait, um, let me just finish sure. this, because no one is investigating that. The FBI is not investigating whether or not the machines have been hacked. They will say 
to, you know, the Department of Homeland Security will say, to our knowledge, no results have ever been changed. But what they also say, if you look at their language carefully, is we did not look. It was not part of our job to look. We have not looked. No one is doing forensic analysis of the results to find out if there's any actual manipulation of the vote. We don't know. And, and what channels do you think there are to root that out? Is it really just a matter of um, like there's not the will from the executive branch? Is there that was actually I was going to ask you, it seems that you cover more the mechanics of how these machines are flawed as opposed to, yeah, that question of unturning in the stones that lead to uh, who would take advantage of this. And is it just something where they just want to have that lever there if there's ever a race that matters enough to sway things the way they want them to go? And it's not like it's just all the time, but whoever has control of that, I, I think, you know, how would you root that out? How will someone root that out? Do, do they have to be exposed in just through exit polls or um, what? What options do you see, or is the only option to get these corrupt vendors out of the process? Well, I think those are really legitimate and important questions to ask, and I'm really glad that you're asking them. I think it's uh, I, those are those are great questions. So one thing was, what can we do? What can be done? And that's I've recently just um, with some colleagues have formed SmartElections.us, and the purpose of that organization is to coordinate uh, to coordinate groups from a variety of sectors that are all interested in election reform. And there are four main sectors that we're targeting, and that is the election security, the accessibility, the voting rights, and the anti-corruption movement. And what we believe is that those different communities are working, in some cases, really hard, really passionately, and have strong following, but in silos. And if we can coordinate actions uh, across movements and across the political spectrum from the left to the right, including, you know, green, libertarian, and bring together a transpartisan unified election reform movement that can raise this issue in the national profile, really make it a, a, an important point of discussion as we're moving into 2020, making sure that every major candidate is taking a position on election reform, understands the issues of election security, and says, yes, I am going to take these actions. I do want us to have a modern, safe, and secure uh, election infrastructure. I do want us to be voting on paper ballots. I do want us to have robust audits. I do want to have um, really uh, accessible machines that the disability community is comfortable in. I want us to get money out of politics. You know, I want to make sure that every voter that is eligible has the right and the ability to vote, like to really make sure that we have a strong platform of election reform, that we are holding candidates to the fire on before they get elected. So once they get elected, we can say, hey, you promised to move forward on this and make our decisions. Like if you're if you're looking at two candidates and they both look really good to you, which one has the stronger position on election reform? Maybe that's your deciding issue. So that's one of the main things that we want to do with our organization is really work to um, uh, to grow the election reform movement across uh, sectors. And then we also uh, are 
trying to unify within like the election security movement. Again, there are a lot of individual silos and we're trying to bring people together. We're working on an action right now on June 6th. We're going to be having an action in New York about the um, voting machines that are uh, have been and are being certified here. Uh, that's the latest piece that if you go to smartelections.us, you can watch. And it's about the hybrid voting machines that have a very particular vulnerability that uh, is, is really a disaster. Those particular new hybrid voting machines, they're, they, com- they sometimes are touchscreen, sometimes optical scan, but what they do is they, they combine two functions in one. Uh, they combine a printer and a scanner, and it'll, it has the possibility that the, the machine, if hacked, could print extra votes on the paper ballot and make it impossible to, uh, to have a legitimate uh, uh, paper ballot audit, which is, is what we're counting on to check these machines. So it's a particularly insidious type of hack, and we're going to have an action on June 6th in New York, and we're talking to, um, and that'll be in Albany at the uh, State Board of Elections in Albany, to say to them, we don't want to vote on these machines. We want machines we can trust and machines that are comfortable for the disability community. And we are actually working now with activists, uh, election security activists in Georgia, in Illinois, in Virginia, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, and saying, hey, do you guys want to do actions on that same day? In in New York, is Albany the right target for that as far as um, does it do they make a decision for the whole state? What I'm seeing in Ohio, there was just today in the news or uh, yesterday, a story about new voting machines being purchased in a local county. Um, it, I was trying to find out if they're from ESNS. It says they will not have pre-print ballots. So I don't know if that means they're going to be printed on these machines. It's kind of a vague article about what machines were purchased. But I do know Cuyahoga County is weighing whether or not to replace our electronic voting. And it's between ESNS, Heart, InterCivic, and Clear Ballot. Um, and but the question is what machines, because each of those companies makes machines that are in some cases, um, you know, that you can have a reliable hand marked paper ballot. And some of them make machines that, and they, and those same companies will also make machines that do not provide a hand marked paper ballot, use it, you know, or have a ballot with barcodes on it that could be hacked. So it, you really, the devil's in the details there. So are you talking like the ES and S? has a DS200 scanner. That's a solid scanner that's been in use for years. But they also make the Express Vote uh, and the Express Vote XL, which the Express Vote XL is a hybrid machine that uh, experts have said has this, you know, horrible type of, of hack that people could do where it could actually print extra votes on the paper ballot. So the thing is to really get into the, it's, it's hard because it's, it's such, um, you really get into the, into the, you get down into the weeds, uh, really trying to evaluate election equipment. But one of the things that our group is trying to do, we have a really great technical advisory team, and we are trying to uh, connect uh, election security experts with election officials in local communities. So uh, we're, we're trying to provide a template so that uh, election officials know, first off, do not go to your vendor for technical advice. Because the vendor is not a technical expert. A vendor is a salesperson. And much as they may seem like a technical expert, they are not. And you would not go to Best Buy, I hope, and just buy a new cell phone 
just on the advice of the salesperson. You would probably go online and look at reviews and look at, you know, Amazon and see what people said there. And, you know, maybe do look at uh, a couple, uh, you know, electronics magazines. You would, you would look at some other input. And unfortunately, election officials all over the country are just relying on vendors for technical advice. And the vendors are, of course, telling them that these machines are, are using the latest security technology that they can't be hacked. They're telling them that they're fast when they're not. They're just, and if you, if you watch the piece that, uh, that we just put out at Smart Elections, you will see we literally edit this back to back. We edit interview, an interview between, uh, Professor Andrew Appel, who is a, one of the top security experts in the country for election issues. Uh, he's a, a professor of computer science at Princeton. And we show that with um, footage of a Dominion a voting machine sales rep. And the sales rep will, like, make these uh, statements, like the machines can't be hacked. And then Andrew Appel will say, uh, yeah, any voting machine can be hacked. And you see back to back, you see how they are not being truthful and they are not the people that we need to be turning to uh, for advice on this. So, uh, if you guys are buying election equipment there, please, uh, you know, get in touch with me after this podcast and let's try to hook you up with, uh, some, there's, Ohio has a lot of really great, uh, security people that you can turn to there and we can try to hook your election officials up with them so that they can get some really good advice and they can make better decisions. Well, you know, it's striking me as you're talking about this, how it, are we, t- are we looking at, should there be a fundamental change in government to a degree where we need to, it needs to be mandated that there has to be some in-house technical expertise. Um, you know, like a, a, an actual like wing of like just, a, I don't know what branch it would probably fall under of like, you know, just the, why do we have vendors? It seems to me that like, this is the sort of thing where we just need to figure out what is the best, most secure system and to whatever degree possible, have it be open sourced and reviewable and and peer reviewed because open source software can be you know secure and adopt like you know the best practices and not worry about saving a buck on it if democracy is the thing everyone loves to say is so great about america it kind of just frustrates me that like that we're even allowing like the priority of just like well how much does it cost and well like this that we, you know, allow these flaws to continue on and it's not con- considered like, you know, how how dare we allow that? Because we're America and we want to, you know, live up to uh, how, how much we think that our democracy means to us. Right. Yeah, you know, the irony of this, and can I call you DC? Yeah, that's my, that's my name I go by in most stuff. <laughs> I love that. So the irony of that, DC, is that the systems that are the most secure are sometimes the least expensive systems. Mm-hmm. And the systems that are the most hackable are these incredibly expensive boondoggles that the vendors are selling. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, open source would be great. And there is actually a team now at Galois working on a open source secure voting machine. Uh, and it's going to be, I don't know how well they can, uh, you know, I, we're all going to see. Um, if they're able to achieve that. But the good news is that it's going to be uh, available for hackers to look at in July, is it in July and August, at, the, at DEF CON uh, this summer. Yeah. Uh, I forget when DEF CON is going to be. So, um, and 
you know, maybe that's going to be a new paradigm for us. Maybe we can get into a government-funded, open-source, secure system through that machine that's being developed now. I know that, um, like, other than that, you know, what you're talking about really is, is I mean, it's literally the same that's sort of the parallel problem is, you know, something like healthcare, where you have the insurance companies making a ton of money. <laughs> and uh, people keep saying, wow, we could do this a lot, probably a lot more affordably if we had single payer healthcare, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's sort of similar. That sounds to me like that's sort of a, what you're proposing there for the, you know, the voting machine technology industry is that if we remove the, the vendors from the equation, we could have a more secure, more affordable uh, election infrastructure. And I think that very well may be true, but unfortunately, I mean, there's, you know, there's well, to me, that leads to a route to if, if that's the, if that becomes like an idea of a policy or like a type of reform is, is to just maybe, you know, have more of that attitude of just, we need to look at certain things and, and, and shift our perspective and our motive should not be to like save a dime or this or that. It should be to have the most secure system that invites, that allows the most pretty people to participate. The, the craziest thing to me is. Wait, can is, I just, I want to just say something about that too, though. Okay. Cause also keep in mind um, that it might not be a good idea to have the government making voting technology because the government is the group that's in power right now. I'm not right? saying that they power, should the be making so, it, but as much as facilitating that and, and, and like maybe, you know, no different than the government is running a GitHub account and they ha- introduce projects and it's like, this is the, you know, voting system project and anyone can right. see it and access it and audit it. Um, and there's no question about it. And machine, the specs for how machines are built and then the protocols for how the hardware is handled and and then checking like you know if, if a recount is necessary um right no but one that, that is kind of happening right now also in la so there's the la county it's called vsap voting solutions for all people and that process that you're describing actually is pretty similar to what happened in, in la they decided not to do a request for a proposal like an rfp but to build the system themselves and they spent uh, the last few years building a, a system that they own it is not open source, but it is uh, I am sort of on the cusp of that. They, I guess parts of it are open source. They, I think they are going to make it available to other states to use um, once they get it launched. They did work very closely with the disability community. It has had at least more security testing than many of the, than the vendors uh, have done. Uh, and it's, as far as I can tell, the security is, is improved. It's not my favorite type of machine. It does use a QR code, which I don't care for. Um, mm-hmm. It is a touchscreen machine. But I do think that the process has definitely been more transparent and it's going to have a better result than we've seen with the private vendors. So I think that is basically what you were describing there is happening in L.A. I'll definitely um, look into that. I have the website up here and it definitely it looks interesting. Um, to what, yeah, to whatever degree that like, there's more like public involvement in these mechanisms. And, and I, I sort of go back and forth over wondering, like, does it make sense for this to be like every city and county and state does like, can do their own things versus like, you know, or should it just be like, we find the best way and then we do it that way. Um, I mean, but then there's stuff like with this, the, I mean, so I wanted, to, I wanted to talk is, about the machine you were, you were, um, 
you were looking at here with this hybrid. And it strikes me as somewhat, uh, you know, crazy that like what it does is so it prints out your ballot and it, and it can control what is printed. Now, in my understanding, do you even see the printed copy of it? There are three different hybrid machines that we're worried about, and they each work a little bit differently. So I don't want to get, you know, again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds. It, it's hard for people to follow sometimes. But sure. There's a, there's a touchscreen option, which I think is kind of what you're describing, and that, I believe, uh, is probably best exemplified by the Express Vote XL. That's a touchscreen machine. It prints out. You, you put a ballot into it, and those ballots are... Um, there's thermal paper, if you can believe it. Mm. You know, you've ever noticed how, like, you, you get a receipt from the grocery store and it's in your pocket for two weeks and you pull it out and it's totally blank? Right. Right? That's thermal paper. <laughs> so, Like disappearing ink. Yeah, yeah. So they're making about some thermal paper. Not such a great idea. Uh, so you take a blank thermal paper ballot and you put it in the machine. Then it's touchscreen. You select your choices. You And then the machine... Um, your choices out. You I either it prints them out, either it gives them I don't think you actually touch the ballot. I think it shows it to you in a window. You can see there. There's definitely opportunities for hack there because if you um, decide not to vote for a particular candidate, it's supposed to say like no vote selected or something, but probably if the machine was hacked it would just leave that blank where you didn't vote for an office and then most voters aren't going to notice that, that, that there's a blank space on their ballot or they didn't vote for somebody. They'll probably think it's normal. Uh, and then so that ballot is then sucked, after you've cast the ballot, sucked back into the machine to be cast. But unfortunately, as it's sucked back into the machine, it goes past the print head. So, that if, so say you left a, an, a, an office, say you vote for president, but you left Senate blank. Now the print head can fill in that race for you ah. and you would never be the wiser well one thing so that bothered me about the machines in ohio that i have voted on since i moved here was it was a uh you know a bubble ballot you fill up by hand and that, mm -hmm. that's one thing that's ridiculous to me about the fact that they're they're having these printers be built into the machines. certainly some people for accessibility reasons will need a, a print of a, assistive device um but the that y facial recognition technology exists, and yet you can't design a ballot that a computer can read if you fill in the bubbles correctly. And but so it was a bubble ballot, and I fed it into this machine, and all I was shown on the screen was uh, ballot received, and I never got a confirmation that like what I filled in the bubbles was like what, and and that always kind of bothered me to some degree that. Yeah, there's a paper trail in there, but I don't know, you know, how it was immediately read in that moment. Well, that's why we want when we're moving to risk limiting audits, um, we're going to we're, we're looking into um, a machine that has a more specific breakdown. And that's where you get a cast vote record. So you as a voter would not get the cast vote record, but the election official would get the cast vote record and the cast vote record shows every single ballot, how it was voted, how the machine tabulated that vote. So, you know, you voted a certain way with your bubble, but the cast vote record shows how the, how the machine counted that vote. And then when you do a, an audit, you can compare that 
particular ballot, it might have an individual number on it. So ballot number 17, you could, the, the election official doing the audit could go and look at the paper ballot and see, you know, you voted for, I don't know, Jill Stein for president, say. And then you would go and look at the cast vote record and see, you know, ballot number 3478. Did ballot number 3478 register a vote for Jill Stein in the cast vote record? And if they did, yes, that's good. If they didn't, no. Then if you're doing a risk limiting audit, that goes into, you know, the um, group of ballots that were not counted correctly, and it could trigger um, an escalation of the audit. Or if you're, you know, doing a full hand count, obviously that that ballot wasn't counted correctly. So you would want to change that, you know, if the machine counted it incorrectly. So there are um, there are technologies that are being developed to try to uh, make sure that the machine does read every ballot correctly. And the cast vote record is uh, one of the main, uh, there's, there's, I would say, probably two technologies that, uh, that are helpful for that. The cast vote record, uh, and the other is the digital ballot image. So there's a whole other group of people in the country who are working on digital ballot images. The main group for that is Audit USA. Uh, and they are trying to make sure that ballot images are available across the country uh, to the public with simple public records requests or even just put online after the election. And that, now you wouldn't be able to find your particular ballot because the ballot is supposed to be anonymous. But you would be able to, if, if the, when these scanners, when they work now, they don't actually count the, the paper. What they do is they take a full photograph of the paper and then the newer ones, and then that's a digital ballot image, and then they count the the ink on the digital ballot image. And so the digital ballot image is uh, then part of the uh, election record. It can be released to the public uh, if, it's, if it's in a state that um, is allowing the release of digital ballot images. And then you could put all those digital ballot images with a hash to guarantee that the image hasn't been changed in any way. You could put them all online. And then candidates could count their own votes. You know, they could go through all the votes uh, and, and check that the results as certified are correct. Or groups that are interested could count candidates, could count referendums. So if we can get digital ballot images as a, as a part of the standard protocol that we're using across the country, that is a really great way that we're going to be able to help to uh, confirm that the machines are counting the votes correctly. However, if these hybrid machines take hold, the hybrid machines could potentially make that digital ballot image uh, not useful because if the hybrid machine is hacked and it prints a vote on the paper ballot, then the paper ballot isn't going to match the digital ballot image potentially, uh, depending on at what point in the process the, the image is taken. Uh, and so then the, the digital ballot image and the paper won't match and we won't be able to actually verify the vote. So th these hybrid machines could interfere with many, many ways that we have developed to try to make sure that the elections are secure and accurate. So who do you see as being like are the best allies on this issue that are in government right now? Ron Wyden, Senator from Oregon is furious with the vendors. He is just passionately battling them, trying to uh, let the public know how, uh, how this group of companies is not serving the public. And he's been really vocal and, uh, and forceful in that. He's written legislation, the Payback 2. I, I haven't read the whole thing, but my understanding is that it's a very good piece of legislation. 
uh, which would help us move towards hand-marked paper ballots and robust audits. Uh, so he's been really great. There are other um, senators who have also been uh, working on legislation uh, that I that I think has merit. And um, I'm I'm more concerned about the HR one. I found out the other day that HR one has, which is what the the reform bill that the House passed, has some hidden sort of. Um, elements to it that I was very uncomfortable with. One thing is that it raises the amount of money for matching funds uh, for like third party candidates. And it would really apparently cripple the green party. So I think there's, there's some hidden things in HR one that we want to be aware of. Um, But in terms of advocates for election reform, um, our group secureelections.us is working nonstop on this. And then there's other groups, Secure Our Vote is a good one, and they're working to um, help communities move toward uh, handmarked paper ballots um, and risk-limiting audits. And I think it's really like others. Uh, I mean, there's local groups that I just love, Wisconsin Election Integrity, Michigan Election Reform Alliance, uh, groups around the country where people are working really, really hard on these issues. Uh, the Audit USA that I mentioned is working really hard to bring ballot images. Uh, Florida Fair Elections Coalition is fantastic. The two women there, um, Susan Pynchon and Kitty Garber, um, are incredibly knowledgeable about elections in Florida and across the country. So I'm curious, how does the narrative of Russia hacked the election land on you covering this issue and seeing the amount of talk that that gets versus how much focus this has gotten on, on primetime news coverage. I think it's a double edged sword. So the fact that we became aware in 2016 that a nation state was trying to interfere in our elections was a moment of awakening and in some ways a very good moment of awakening for our country because actually this has been going on. The the potential for interference in the election has been there for decades, ever since these electronic machines were introduced around 2002 and Hava passed. So, and, and many, many people have been worried about this for a long time, people in the election security community. And so for the broader public to wake up and realize that this, security threat exists was actually very, very helpful and important and really an epiphany, a moment of epiphany for the country in terms of of understanding the problems with our elections. Right now, unfortunately, there is so much focus looking backward. Everyone is looking at the Mueller report and obsessing on the Mueller report in 2016 and what happened in 2016. And unfortunately, it is just sucking all of the air out of the room, and people are not looking forward to 2020. And 2020 is just around the corner, and we are not ready. And our, machi- our machinery is insecure. Our protocols are not good. And our information space, our awareness and education about these issues is not where it needs to be. So I very, very much want people to get up to speed and look ahead and and just a little bit let go of what happened in 2016. Keep it as a touch point, but look ahead. We're, it, it's that whole thing that, that, that you hear about, about people preparing for the last battle. There's another battle coming down the road at us. And please 
do go to our website, smartelections.us. Please do follow me on Twitter at Lulu Freistat, L-U-L-U-F-R-I-E-S-D-A-T, and get yourself up to speed on these issues. Elections are local. And although there are drawbacks to that, one of the great things is that you as an individual can actually do a lot more than you might think if you get in touch with your local local election officials, find out what equipment is being used, get yourself up to speed on whether it's, you know, what the problems are, and start working on, you know, what needs to be, uh, uh, what needs to be improved in your community. Reach out to us through our website. You can contact us. We will try to be in touch with you and help you to find out, you know, what are the next steps you need to improve your local elections. All right, Lulu, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Uh, I will definitely link to everything you have coming out with Smart Elections and hope that everyone does follow you. Um, I really uh, would definitely want to uh, keep in touch with you or let me, you know, I'll be following you and and, uh, uh, I'm going to be watching this issue pretty closely and, and, and especially now that, you know, being aware that it's coming up in Ohio and seeing what can be done to be prepared for that. Um, cause I, I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely tired of just this, this issue coming and going and coming and going and never actually getting addressed. And it wasn't, uh, an, the Russia hack the election thing. I always found frustrating for the reasons we're talking about that being paying attention to this issue for so long and watching what we've allowed to happen to ourselves and the vulnerabilities, maybe now it finally, yeah, strikes home with some people that, we're, we are this vulnerable and it should be transpartisan because it's, you don't, you know, whether you trust the Republicans in power in your state or the Democrats in power, in your state to not mess with the election. Like if we're going to believe that there are bad actors outside of our country, then we should have the ro- most robust system as possible and take it absolutely seriously and stop worrying about trying to cut, save a dollar here and there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Although, as I said, sometimes the most secure options are the least expensive. A piece of paper and a pen is much less expensive, and uh, it turns out much more secure in many ways. So, um, yeah, I look forward to finding out what equipment they're using in your county in Ohio. Keep me posted. Let me know what you find out. I look forward to being in touch with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, like any struggling podcast, I can always use a little iTunes love with a five-star rating or swing by the Facebook page, throw a like my way, maybe a couple of comments. And if you really, really like the show, you can kick a couple of bucks my way at patreon.com slash bzdug. That's B-Z-D-U-G. Okay, that's it. End of podcast. Enjoy whatever it is you're about to do next. Thanks. Bye.